Today's episode is sponsored by Acorns. Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future. You don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. Acorns recommends an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. I don't know the first thing about investing my money, and it is all so overwhelming, I wouldn't even know where to begin. I love that Acorns makes it so easy and how you don't need a lot of money to get started. So head to acorns.com creepers or download the Acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today. Paid non-client endorsement may not be representative of all clients. Tier 1 compensation provided. Compensation provides an incentive to positively promote Acorns. View important disclosures at acorns.com creepers. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. Please consider your objectives, risk tolerance, and Acorns fees before investing. Acorns Advisors LLC, Acorns, is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are provided to clients of Acorns by Acorns Securities LLC. Member FINRA SIPC. For more information, visit acorns.com. This week's sponsor is absolutely perfect for true crime fans, especially those of us that love a twisty, turny murder mystery. June's Journey is a game set in the Roaring Twenties. June's sister Claire and her husband Harry were found dead, and June is certain that they've been murdered. Now she must travel to New York, where her sister's estate was, to look after her niece and solve the mystery of Claire's death. You go along the journey with June, searching for hidden objects in different locations from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris, uncovering hidden clues to solve the mystery as you go. I'm already on chapter six and the mystery has gotten so good. I cannot wait to uncover more clues. I'm also loving how you get to customize your very own luxurious estate island. That's right. Let your imagination run wild as you decorate your island with expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. My pool is literally insane. It has a waterfall. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free on iOS and Android. Well, I'm going to be pretty insufferable today. Oh, yeah. How is your juice cleanse going? I'm hungry. Well, how long have you been doing it? Okay, like for two hours, but... (laughs) You started today. Yeah, it also ends today. It's just a one day... It's a one day reset, okay? But I did prime myself to talk about murder by playing Clue last night. You want to talk about something egregious? Did you know Russell's never played the game of Clue? What even was his childhood? I... I don't know, but he's never played. And then he proceeded to wipe us all clean last night. Stop it. No. That can't be possible. Welcome to another episode of True Crime Creepers, where we talk about all the real-life creeps, from serial killers to con artists. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm Mogap, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. Life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should Payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earn In is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 a day or $750 per pay period. Just download the Earn In app and verify your paycheck, and then access your money as you earn it instead of having to wait for it to hit your account. 
Any money you access, including any optional tips, are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. It is a much-needed alternative to predatory payday lenders for people that find themselves in a bind, like a bill due Wednesday when payday isn't until Friday. Or you're like me and you're just getting slammed with birthdays. Why are all my friends Tauruses? With Earn In, I don't have to worry about being late with a gift because I had to wait for payday. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in Creepers under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Creepers under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, location, daily max, and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Right here we go. Today, I'm telling you all about Houston's. It's a local case. Ah, Houston's blue-eyed butcher. I hope this was their occupation and not their <laughs> situation. Skip Hollinsworth from Texas Monthly, my best friend, was uh, a giant help with this episode with his article from 2010 called 193. And I'll link all my sources in the show notes on our website. We're big fans of Skip. We we are big fans of Skip. Okay, so just a quick content warning about this episode. We This is a case of domestic violence, and I do go into some details about the abuse. So if that is a trigger for you, please proceed with caution. Protect your mental health, always. Susan Wright has been described many ways. She's been called polite, timid, apologetic. Growing up, she'd never been very confident, and she'd always had trouble standing up for herself. She even transferred schools because she'd been devastated by things that some mean drill team girls said when Susan was trying out for the team. Oh, I know. She was the kind of person that apologizes when they say the word crap. But ever since January 2003, she's been known as Houston's blue-eyed butcher after she stabbed her husband, Jeffrey Wright, 193 times and buried him face down in their backyard. Oh, my God. Never mind. <laughs> Not feeling sorry for Susan. 193 times? 193 You've times. Got to have like a hand cramp at that point. <laughs> that was a point brought up in trial. Like, my hand's tired oh, already. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, yeah. This is Susan's story about what happened that night. Susan said that on the night of January 13th, 2003, Jeffrey came home to their small patio home in the White Oak Bend subdivision in Northwest Houston. It's like near Jersey Village. He'd, okay. he'd been at a boxing lesson and he was high on cocaine and tried to get their four-year-old son Bradley to box with him. Oh, my God. Yeah. They play fought for a while and then Bradley didn't want to do it anymore. So Jeffrey punched the toddler in the face so hard he fell back into the love seat. And when <gasps> Oh, and when Bradley started crying, Jeffrey called him a sissy. This is the worst case. I this is the worst thing I've ever heard. I'm so upset. First (laughs) of all, every week who I know, but okay, a toddler just got punched in the face. I know who goes to like boxing on cocaine. Those are like the two worst things to mix. Plus the driving part. You had to drive yourself to boxing. You know, I didn't think about that. Like, why is he? Why is he wasting his cocaine when he's going to box? Like, it, does it make you 
like a better boxer somehow. No, that fool thought he was in a real life rendition of Street Fighter. That's awful. Yeah. And yeah. you know he didn't Uber there. There was an Uber in 2003. No, he drove. He drove. <sighs> so Susan said she told him that he needed to get help for his anger and he attacked her. He ordered her into their bed and raped her. He then left for a minute and came back holding a butcher knife. He waved it around her shouting, die, bitch. Susan threw her hands up, grabbed the knife and started kicking him with her right knee. She was able to get the knife from him and she first stabbed him in the neck and then just kept stabbing him. And she felt like the second she stopped, he would kill her. Bradley knocked on the door while Susan was stabbing Jeffrey. And though Jeffrey had already been stabbed many times, Susan was convinced that he could still hurt her. So she tied his right arm to the bed with a necktie, hid the knife, and took Bradley back to his room. Then she got Mm. another knife from the kitchen in case Jeffrey had found the first knife and got back to the room and just started stabbing him again. And she thought about all the times that he had kicked her and started stabbing his legs. She thought about all the times he made her have sex when he didn't want, when she didn't want to and stabbed his penis. She cut the tie connecting his hand to the bedpost and pulled him off the bed. And she says there was a red candle on the nightstand that Jeffrey had lit earlier and the wax spilled when his shoulder hit the nightstand. <gasps> She then went and got a dolly that they had in the house, propped his six foot two, oh 220 God. pound body up on this dolly, secured his feet to it with um, a sash from a bathrobe, and then she steered him out to the backyard to a hole that Jeffrey had dug months before for a fountain he planned to install but had never finished. Um, What? Do you even want me to say to all of that? (laughs) (laughs) She dumped his body in the hole and covered him with dirt and then went inside and sat on the couch for the rest of the night holding the knife, convinced that Jeffrey was still alive and that he was going to get up and come kill her as soon as she went to sleep. Jeffrey's mother said that Susan had called her sometime that night and told her that he'd come home from his boxing lesson and he'd been on drugs, they'd argued, and he'd left. Toxicology reports would confirm that he had alcohol, GHB, and a ton of cocaine in his system, but he obviously had not left. What system was there left to, like, (laughs) run, trace, anything? It sounds like... Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm so grossed out. I was like, this is going to be an easier one today. <laughs> what? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Wright said that she'd had a mental breakdown that night and it lasted for months. Her brain just Same. wouldn't accept what she'd done and she didn't tell anyone. Five days after she killed him, she started to realize what had happened and what she had done. I'm not exactly sure of the details or the time frame about what comes next here, but I do know that on January 18th, 2003, defense attorney Neil Davis walked into the district attorney's office and said that he had a client who said there was a body at their home. Wait, back it up. Mm -hmm. So we think she's like kind of in shock, denial for a while until she realizes like, oh my God, I murdered someone. Yes. And then she... Possibly calls this person? She calls an attorney, the p- which is not interesting. The police. Right. Not okay. the police. Right. So 
Police arrived at the house and they found the body of Jeffrey Wright buried in the backyard. Um, partially buried, I should say, because by this time the family dog had started <gasps> digging him up. Mm-mm. Yeah. They could see that he was stabbed all over the front of his body. There were neckties around both wrists and a bathrobe sash wrapped around one ankle. Inside the house, they found blood splattered all over the master bedroom. It was on the oh bed. Oh, my God. She floors, didn't clean it up. The walls, the ceiling. Okay. They're the ironing in- board. She's living in this. You can keep naming it. My question still <laughs> remains. Again. She's just living in this? I never thought about that. With her son? Okay, so now this doesn't make sense to me because at trial, we'll talk about it. They said she did try to clean up. She pulled up carpet. She painted over the walls. She – so I'm not understanding how five days later they came in and saw blood everywhere. Yeah. But she was also in the middle of a mental breakdown. So maybe she just didn't do as good a job cleaning as she intended. Davis, Susan's attorney, had her admitted to the psychiatric ward of Ben Taub General Hospital, and Ooh. she was just – I know. <laughs> I would – if I had to go to a psych ward, it would not – I would not want to be at Ben Taub. And she I, was – I mean, <laughs> respect to all of our frontliners out there, but – Absolutely, but yes, yikes. And they said that she was just babbling to herself. She thought that Jeffrey was roaming the hallways of the hospital and that he was going to find her and kill her. So Susan seemed to have a childhood just ripped straight from the 50s. She had her sister Cindy, a brother named Jim, and they grew up in an upper middle class home in Houston. Cindy described their mother as the quintessential stay-at-home mom who baked meals from scratch, and their dad was a mechanical engineer with a temper. Susan said they learned to walk on eggshells, to put a smile on and make everything look normal because their dad could fly into rages and attack their mother and sometimes the kids. When he got mad, the kids tried to stay hidden. Susan said she thought that's just what happened in every house. The husband yells at the wife and makes her feel like dirt. And we talked in the Marissa Alexander episode that one of the reasons women stay in abusive relationships is because of this normalized abuse. Like when you grow up seeing it, you think it's normal. So you don't see the red flags when they're happening to you. Right. None of this was brought up in her trial, and she said that she didn't say any of this because she didn't want to embarrass her family, but her parents say that the abuse allegations aren't true at all. So who knows? I mean, yeah. I I say who knows, but I also know that people definitely try to cover up abuse and and cover up for their abusers. So I'm not surprised that if it is true that her parents said that it's not. Right. Minus all of that, the 50s are the time that I would have liked to have grown up. Just an FYI, in case you were wondering. Really? Yeah, I used to watch, I think it's the 50s or 60s. I used to watch The Sandlot all the time, the Uh movie, you know? uh And I was, like, obsessed. So those are the parents I'm actually picturing. If you're wondering, like, Susan is the mom from The Sandlot and the little boy. What was his name? Susan's son? Bradley. Bradley. He's the kid from The Sandlot. Oh. (laughs) Okay. Like, I wanted to be a kid in that movie. (laughs) <laughs> That's like one of my favorite movies. I've only seen like five movies in my Do life. Do you know, also, I wanted to be a kid in Now and Then, so I feel you. Mm. Mm-hmm. In fact, I used to play Now and Then at recess every day. 
when I was in fourth grade. <laughs> I would make all my friends play now and then. And I always wanted to be Roberta, which was Christina Ricci's character. But they always made mm-hmm. me be Chrissy because she was the chubby one. <laughs> oh, your friends suck. I know. So glad you paid for me later. Oh, absolutely. You were the best money I ever spent. Hmm. Susan said she looked for attention from boys in high school. She'd do whatever she could to please them. She dropped almost 20 <sighs> pounds after one boyfriend criticized her looks. I mean, we've all been there. We've all been there. <laughs> yeah. And when another boyfriend encouraged her to work as a dancer at a topless bar, she did it for a few months. I don't think we've all been we there. Have no. all been there. We have not all <laughs> been there. We have not been there. Not been there. She thought that she would like the attention and that it would make her feel better about herself, but it did not. Mm-hmm. After graduation, she took classes at a junior college and she went to work at a hair salon. In April 1997, when Susan was 20 years old, she went on a trip to Galveston and met 29-year-old Jeffrey. What do you what do you think of that age difference there? Sorry, say it again. 20 and 29. I uh, I don't know. I feel like when you're in your 20s. Yeah, but think of yourself at 20 and then think of yourself at 29. Yeah, you're right. That's like my 20-year-old self trying to date basically my 30-year-old self. Yeah, no. Yeah. I Like, what do you have in common, I guess? I don't yeah, know. that's right. You you have completely different life experiences at that point. Like, I think there's a huge – I don't think there's a huge difference between, like, 30 and 39, you know? Yeah, 40, but, 49. That's what I was thinking of it as, but you're right. Yeah. Like, you can't even drink. That's what I'm saying. Literally. And large age differences can often cause an imbalance of power in relationships because of one partner having significantly less life experience and just being more naive. And Susan sounds exactly like that type of person. It's weird to me that you can be a topless dancer but not have a cocktail. You know what I mean, too? I mean, you can go to war and you can go not to have a cocktail. But yes. Yeah. That's weird. That's the craziest thing to me. Like, you can sign up to go to war. I think I, I don't love this age difference with them. Uh, yeah, especially when you're not even of legal drinking age and you're dating someone almost 30. I, I don't know. Yeah, like you can't go to the same establishments. Right. But he bought her flowers. He took her to nice restaurants and he soon told her that he loved her and she thought he was wonderful. She had no idea that just a year before she'd met Jeffrey, he'd pled guilty to a felony drug possession charge and had been on probation. He left that detail out. Yeah. When does that come up in the dating Third date, maybe. <laughs> and I feel like I should holler downstairs, like, "Hey, babe." <laughs> yeah. Any felony drug <laughs> possession charges I should know about? Yeah. Just kidding. By 1998, she was working at an orthodontist office, handing her paychecks directly over to Jeffrey at his request. Ugh. Boy, bye. Boy, bye. In February of that year, she got pregnant, and they were married in October. So she, they weren't even married, and she's handing over her checks. Mm-hmm. Their son, Bradley, was born in November, and Susan said that's when Jeffrey became a totally different person. He'd call her fat ass because of the weight she'd gained during her pregnancy. And then <laughs> when Susan was diagnosed with postpartum depression, he wouldn't let her take the antidepressants the doctor prescribed. <gasps> Ooh, I hate this person. <sighs> I don't understand how people – I do not understand how – like, I get when someone's, like, a piece of shit their whole life. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't understand how someone – because you hear about this all the time. Someone is, like, whining and dining them, love bombing them. We talked about that. Like, mm-hmm. so sweet. And they really have no idea. Mm-hmm. And then it's not like they just kind of get moody. Like, they become the biggest 
loser piece of shit in the world and they start like hitting on their wife, girlfriend, whatever. And I just don't understand. Like, I don't understand. uh, The weird thing to me is that it's such a pattern. It's the same thing in every one of these relationships. That's what's so weird to me. It's like they all formed a club and figured out the exact right pattern. And Mm -hmm. it's so crazy to me. I would like to state that these this is Susan's story. This is what she is saying happened. There is nothing, no evidence of any of this. But I am just going to go out and say that I believe her. Yep. Because I, And I believe her because of the level of detail in all the stories that she gave. I think it's pretty hard to make up a story like that. So I do believe all of this that she's saying about the abuse that she suffered. Yeah, I mean, they found drugs in his system, and not that that means that you, you know, you take drugs, you're an abuser, but when you, I do believe that they alter your ability of sound judgment, obviously, you know, yeah, and this absolutely. guy had all these other things in his system too, cocaine and you listed GHB other and too. alcohol. Yeah. 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 Okay. So I don't think he was really like on his best behavior, you know? Yeah, I agree. Um, so Susan said Jeffrey said she just needed to suck it up and do her job. Uh, Her job at the time was to be a stay-at-home mom, which is what Jeffrey wanted. She says that she was only allowed to leave the house for quick trips to the grocery store or to visit her mom, but he would only allow her to be gone for an hour and a half. And he wouldn't let her take courses at a junior college. So when she went and visited the campus anyway, Jeffrey called her a nasty whore and accused her of only going there to cheat on him. He smoked pot almost every day after work, and she got worried about his drug use when he'd get high and start tossing Bradley up in the air and catching him. When she confronted him about this, he threw her up against the wall and punched her in the chest over and over, and he said she didn't have a right to tell him when or how he could pick up his son. They moved into their patio home in April of 1999, and the physical abuse escalated. Anything would set him off. Issues with his paycheck, a customer upsetting him, the electric bill being too high, if the house wasn't spotless, if dinner wasn't perfect, if the baby was too loud. And once he got set off, he would hit or kick her in the chest, stomach, back, and legs. Susan said he would even kick their 60-pound dog. Oh. Which somehow is the worst part. Susan... Uh. Susan was embarrassed of the abuse and felt like it was her fault, so she didn't tell anyone. She said she just knew that if she was perfect enough, he would be happy and everything would be okay. If she had visible bruises, she wouldn't leave her house. She never considered filing a police report or going to a hospital. She was afraid that Jeffrey would just become more violent. One of her attorneys asked her why she didn't just get a divorce, and she said, it's not that simple. It's not even going to the hospital like, okay, so she goes to the hospital, gets help, and then she has to go home or her son's with this man. Yeah. Like, that's her whole life. She's a stay-at-home mom. She doesn't have resources. Right. And Oh, I get so pissed when people. I know. I know. Why don't you just get a divorce? (laughs) He told her that if she left, that he'd kill her. Yeah, that's why she doesn't get a divorce. That's why she doesn't get a divorce. And in 1999, she actually did make one attempt to move out. Jeffrey had beaten her and then forced her to apologize for the attack. And she was like, I can't take this anymore. So after he left for work, she called her sister, Cindy, who brought her husband and a U-Haul over. And they packed up all of Susan and Bradley's things. And they took them to Cindy and Susan's parents' house. 
And Jeffrey called her the next morning to say that he was sending a moving van and it would be arriving soon. And if she didn't put all her stuff back in the van and come back home, he'd kill her or Bradley. And so she did as she was told. And it's this part of the story is so frustrating to me. It's so frustrating looking in from the outside because like she was out. She'd done it. She'd left. Yeah. But let's say she doesn't go back. Let's say instead she calls the police to report to report the threat. Chances are nothing will ever happen, especially since she never documented or reported any of the abuse prior. She could get a protection order, but the problem with protection orders is that you you have to give your location so they know where yeah. you are because they have to know where to stay away from. And a right. piece of paper isn't going to keep somebody from murdering you. Yeah, someone who doesn't obviously abide by any rules or laws and is doing you know, obviously has a record of substance abuse, is not going to care that you have a piece of paper. Right. They just don't care. No. And a person who is willing to kick a dog has no moral compass whatsoever. So, yeah, he probably would do the unthinkable, obviously. I agree. And then Susan became pregnant again, but she said she miscarried after Jeffrey kicked her in the stomach. She says she didn't go to the hospital because she didn't have enough money. She right. then became pregnant again, and she had Kaylee in December 2001. And oh, she, so th- the second kid, but third time. Second kid, third pregnancy, yes. Okay. She went through postpartum depression again, which made Jeffrey angry. He started getting on dating apps and meeting up, up with other women, and eventually he gave Susan herpes. Oh, hell no. He told her that if she was a better wife, he wouldn't need other women and i have literally heard women say this exact same thing to other women it makes me so mad like what do you mean like you've heard well like like, i've seen it like on social media and stuff like well if she was just this or that or the other then he wouldn't have needed to like about celebrities or about like yeah and i'm just like please By 2002, Jeffrey wasn't making much money. He'd switched jobs and his behavior became more erratic. He even came home drunk one night and peed in baby Kaylee's bed. Ew. I know. Although, what is it with guys doing that? Like not knowing. In college, freshman year, Uh I wake up. My girl, my roommate had brought a dude home. Yep. And just he was peeing peeing in in the the corner. That's happened to me twice. Yeah. Yeah. And Uh I was like, uh, hello, sir. Uh Uh-huh. This is not a, you're not in the bathroom. Yeah. Three times, maybe. It's so weird. It's so weird. Yeah. So weird. Yeah. But in the baby's bed, like in, goes into the baby's room, pees in the bed. Gross. This is the name. Okay. I know that I say this every time we record, but name one character in a case that we've done so far. This is like episode 15, I think, Uh that is worse than this human. Go. Um, okay. Thinking. Think, whoever committed yogurt shop. <sighs> okay. I knew you were. I would literally. Okay. But then second place is this rascal. Yeah. I. Yeah. I. Yep. And I again, the, this know. is all alleged. He obviously was dead. He hasn't been tried for any of these crimes. This is all what Susan is saying. But again, I believe her. So oh, I just want to put he's that. He's being tried in my court in, of law. Yes. He, in our court of, of public opinion on this podcast, he's been tried guilty. In this court <laughs> of public opinion, 
this fool is guilty with a capital G. Mm-hmm. God, he sucks. He bought an air rifle. Do you know what an air rifle is? Yeah, it shoots like those little pellets, right? Uh, no, I don't know. I'm asking like you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, what? <laughs> because I'm like the resident, like yeah, tomboy on the pod. Yeah, you had I, I think uncles sh- that sh- that had you shoot guns. I think it shoots like pellets. Okay. Well, he bought like one of those. I, yeah, because I wasn't sure like what kind of gun that was, but he bought an air rifle to keep the family in line, as he said, and he used to hit her with it. He threw bricks at her in the backyard, and on New Year's 2003, he told Susan it would be her last New Year's. So two weeks later, on January 13th, he came home from the boxing lesson, punched Bradley in the face, and all hell broke loose. But like I said, unfortunately, there is nothing, almost no evidence corroborating any of this. No police reports, no hospital records, nothing. A neighbor testified that she saw Jeffrey grab her arm angrily several times. Friends testified that they'd seen her with a black eye, but that she'd told them that um, Bradley had hit her with a toy on accident, uh, which, mm. again, very normal for an abuse victim to make up lies about how they got their injuries. Yeah, I'm going to say it right now. Like, if any of my friends come to me and they have a black eye and they give me some excuse that they cannot prove, like, I'm going to tell somebody. And I kind of don't care if you're mad at me. Like, yeah. I'm sorry. Um, I'm just going to. I have never heard of anybody that actually got a black eye from walking into a door. So can we stop it with the I walked into a door thing? Yeah, I don't know how that It's really not happened. That's not a thing. One of Susan's best friends, Jamie, said that Susan seemed terrified of Jeffrey. Like they would go have afternoons in the park sometimes. And if she realized she was running late, she'd become frantic to leave so that she could get home in time to cook Jeffrey dinner. But... Jamie admitted that Susan had told her about Jeffrey hitting her one time. So she did tell somebody. Yeah. Susan's mom said she'd seen several black eyes and bruises, and she'd heard her cry out in pain when she tried to hug her because her back was hurt so bad. (gasps) But the mom was also abused, remember? Yeah. And again, no one could provide any actual evidence, like a medical report, that Susan had been a battered wife. I'm also not sure that that would have even mattered because remember Marissa Alexander? She had medical records and a restraining order to prove it, and it still didn't help her. She got married on a restraining order, remember? (laughs) Yeah. And she didn't even kill anybody. Right. So Warning shot. Yeah. Many of Jeffrey's friends and coworkers said that he was a great guy who'd just do anything for you. Their marriage was very happy, Mogab. Jeffrey's boss mm. equated them to a Leave It to Beaver family. And this is so stupid to me because even if Susan wasn't battered, you don't stab your husband 193 times because you're just too damn happy. Yeah. Also, like, you're getting the story from him. You're the boss. Mm-hmm. He's probably not telling you, you know, his boss, all of his marital problems. And also, like, he was in control. He probably was happy because he was out sleeping with whoever he wanted. His wife was having a hot meal on the table. Like, Mm -hmm. and he was in Mm -hmm. control. Like. Yeah. And I think Jeffrey really wanted that Leave It to Beaver family. He wanted that wife, like you said. He wanted that wife at home cooking him dinner, making sure it was warm the second he walked in the door. Yeah. I bet he was perfectly happy with their arrangement. Jeffrey's friends did admit that he'd had problems with drugs, but Mogab, don't worry. Getting married to Susan had fixed him of all of that. Oh, good. 
Yeah, which can't be true because he had so much cocaine in his system when he died that his body hadn't been able to metabolize it. Ew. So what happens? I don't know. I didn't <laughs> look further into that note. Okay. I guess that – nope, not even going to guess. I have no mm-hmm. idea. <laughs> don't. Don't do it. I was going to say it just shows up more on a, on a talk screen. Like it wouldn't have – like, it just would be more prevalent, I, but I have no idea. I'm going to ask Russell his expert opinion from the toxicology world. Yeah, hashtag not a doctor. Does he have expert opinion in the toxicology world? He works in toxicology. I'm sorry. How did I not remember that? What? Yeah. I mean, that's what he works on. Like, he runs drug screens? Like, he works with the instruments that do it, yeah. Mm. Should I ask him what happens? Uh, when yeah. Hey, babe. We need your expert opinion on the podcast if you have a second. <laughs> it's about drugs. Okay. Can you please state can you please state your full name for the people? At RP Wildrick on Instagram. <laughs> oh my god, do not come in here <laughs> dropping your handle. <laughs> Rude. <laughs> so what uh, what what can I do for you? What happens in your body if cocaine doesn't metabolize? Because you've had so much. Does it just show up extra on a toxicology screening? Um, well, yes and no. I mean, it depends on what you're looking for. So after cocaine enters your body, it metabolizes into what's called benzylagonine. So your levels of cocaine would be elevated, but the benzylagonine might not show the true, I don't know, I guess the amount that you did. But I don't know what adverse effect that would have on your body. Okay. I just know what it would relate to from a drug So that that would just happen when you've had so much it won't metabolize. Is that right? That I don't know. I mean, yes. I mean, I, if it's not metab, it has to, once it metabolizes, it, it turns into benzylagonine. Once it metabolizes, it turns into benzylagonine. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fun word. Say it again. Benzylagonine. Benzylagonine. Okay. So you're like kind of an expert. No. No. <laughs> Everyone's You're our expert at, on the pod. <laughs> yeah, everyone's going to come at you in your Twitter mentions and Instagram on their cocaine takes. So way to go. Put that out there. Thanks, Russ. Benzel Negaline. <laughs> I feel like we learned something there. Yeah, that was great. All right. We are not experts <laughs> in anything. <laughs> That's right. Uh this is the best part. This this part that I'm going to go into right here is what put this case on the map. This is what made this a national case, okay? That hasn't happened already? No. The prosecution had this district attorney that clearly wanted to be a star. Oh. Her name was Kelly Siegler, and she might have only been 5'4", but she was known as the fiercest prosecutor in Harris County, which- I love that. I looked this data up, second largest county by area and third largest by population behind Los Angeles County and Cook County, which is where Chicago is. Oh, which honestly surprised me that we're not bigger than Chicago, but whatever. She was dubbed the giant killer and secured death sentences 19 of the 20 times she went after capital punishment. And she was not buying Susan Wright's story for one second. Oh, no. And so what could be considered the trial of the century began. The producer of 48 Hours said this trial was the most exciting trial, bar none, I've ever watched. The kind of thing you think only happens on Law & Order. The courtroom was standing room only. (gasps) And it it was broadcast gavel to gavel on 
something. I don't know. But <laughs> it was brought on the on the television set. Uh, again, not experts. <laughs> the state's theory of the case and what Kelly Siegler told the jury was that Susan most likely lured Jeffrey into bed and tied him to the post like they were going to have some sexy times. <laughs> Siegler said the wax. <laughs> I'm sorry. Is that how you lure men into bed? <laughs> my, did you like my shoulder movement? Yeah, I wish that people could have seen that movement. <laughs> Siegler said the wax hadn't spilled on Jeffrey when Susan was moving his body, but that Susan had poured it on him. Oh. Like she was in some Enrique Iglesias music video. <laughs> I'm sure that she was really into it from yeah. their romantic relationship. Right. But instead of the sexy times that he was expecting, Siegler said Susan pulled out the knife and turned their bedroom, quote, into a torture chamber. Yikes. Why exactly had Susan done this, according to Siegler? Life insurance, of course. A $200,000 policy, to be exact. She said all that battered wife abuse bull was just that. It was bull. Okay. I hate this woman. And second of all, $200,000, I mean, I'm not turning my nose up at that. I could really use it. But that's not enough for me to, like, turn my master bedroom into the chop shop. Right. You know? I feel like that's a I'm just going to push him over this cliff kind of murder. You know, yeah. I'm going to make it look I'm like an accident. Put a little arsenic in his breakfast smoothie, you know, not yeah. a stab him a hundred. And, and also, 193 was just the number that the medical examiner could count to. Like but there, he there couldn't go past, than, he didn't know 194 right. was next. Right. Well, that was all that he could t- like. If yeah. she was stabbed, he was stabbed more than 193 times. That's just the official number. Yeah, I just don't. I don't know life insurance money. I mean, that seems very. And even today, Siegler says that she doesn't think that that was the actual motive. She doesn't know what the motive was. That's just the one that she threw out there in court because juries. And this is true. Juries need a motive. Mm-hmm. If you don't have – and that's why we talked about that in the Lululemon case, how they weren't allowed to bring up the motive behind it um, with Britney yeah. stealing and all of that. And it, she could have maybe gotten off because of that because juries really do like to see – they want to know why. Why did this happen? Mm-hmm. And I can understand that, but because of all the law and order I watch, you know. <laughs> No, but sometimes you just don't know why. And that's always like whenever there's breaking news about some horrific crime, I'm always like, okay, why? They're just giving me the details of what happened. I want to know why. And then it's like, police have not given a motive yet. And I'm like, damn it. Now this doesn't make sense to me. (laughs) Do you think there always has to be a motive? Like, can't there sometimes just be a random stranger kills another random stranger? Yeah, I do. I'm. I'm unsatisfied by those because I'm like, <laughs> I didn't ask why? if you enjoyed them. Did you? Did you? But then I still think that there's a motive. And I think the motive is you're a psychopath who wanted to feel what it feels like to kill another human being. Like, I do. Yeah, think that's a I guess that is a motive with some people. So Susan actually took the stand at her trial through tears. She told the jur- jury story after story about the horrific abuse she'd endured in secret during their five year marriage. She told them about how he abused drugs, which matched up with his toxicology report. She told them how he controlled her, belittled her, kicked and punched her, sexually assaulted her whenever he wanted. And then Siegler cross-examined Susan. 
And she used the two months that she worked as a topless dancer to prove that Susan was a sexual sadist who loved to practice bondage and tease her husband with candle wax. Oh, my God. Girl was trying to pay the bills. Also, I mean, not that I've been to a topless bar many times, but they're not doing all that crazy stuff. Uh, no, being a stripper does not mean you are a sexual sadist who murders yeah. people. Like the right that that is so. Those two things are so far apart. Like <laughs> it's it doesn't even deserve an explanation. It's so ridiculous. Right. Siegler asked Susan if her arm got tired when she stabbed him the fifty sixth time, or the eighty ninth time, or the hundred fifty eighth time. I mean, I am curious about that. I am too, but I also think that. It proves that she was motivated by blind rage, not greed over some insurance policy. Like, I don't think anything but blind rage could keep this little tiny woman stabbing away that many times for that long. Or fear, you know? Fear. I was just about to say rage or fear. Yeah. 100%. Susan said that she kept stabbing him in sheer panic. And Siegler brought up the fact that she was able to hear the knock on the door. And she'd gotten off of Jeffrey, walked Bradley back to bed, got another knife, came back, and continued stabbing him. But again, it's weird. I think it it further proves her point. If she's coming back and continuing to stab him when he's already dead, the what would be the point of doing that if you just wanted to kill him? Right. Like, to me, that shows she really was terrified that he was still alive. Yeah, I don't think she was thinking clearly. I um yeah. I'm very concerned about Bradley and where he is today. <sighs> I okay. Bradley and his sister were both adopted by Jeffrey's brother. <gasps> who continues to say that Jeffrey was a model person. I'm sure he's like talked so much trash about their mother uh, and they're adopted by them now and Susan lost all parental rights to them. Wait. So. And they, this is only 2003. So, and they uh-huh. were, so they're like, I mean, yeah. Like, still like Seven, teenage. Well, no, because that was 17 oh. years ago and Bradley oh was God. four. So he'd be like 21 now. Yeah. Oh. Crazy. But Siegler said that Susan's entire story of abuse was just an act to cover up the murder. Siegler brought up the fact that a few days after the killing, Susan had gone to a constable's office to get a protective order against Jeffrey after she'd killed him. She told the constable that Jeffrey had beaten her, her and Bradley, and then left, and she was scared of what would happen when he came back. So Siegler asked, why didn't you just tell the constable that you'd stabbed him in self-defense? Were you maybe hoping to start a paper trail that Jeffrey had disappeared? But Susan said that at the time, she'd still been unable to really understand what she'd done. She said there was no way that her brain was processing that. And to her, Jeffrey had left right after they'd argued. But apparently, like I mentioned earlier, Susan had tried to clean up afterwards. She'd ripped up parts of the bloody carpet. She'd attempted to scrub bloodstains with bleach. She'd dragged that mattress that was soaked in blood to the backyard. And she'd even gotten paint and painted the blood-splattered walls, which again, brings back to that really good point. How was there blood all over the room if she'd cleaned it up? Yeah. And just like, you can't just just have extra paint, I guess. I don't know. No, I think she went and bought paint to clean it. But how did they see all the blood everywhere in this torture chamber if she had painted over it? Did she just not do a very good job? I mean, that's true. That could be it. 
But she said that she had to clean because Jeffrey was going to be even more angry when he came home and she had to make sure the house was perfect for him before he got back so that he wouldn't be even angrier with her. So then Siegler brought up the fact that Susan had driven to a nursery and bought several bags of topsoil to cover him up with after she dumped him in the grave in her backyard. Yeah, and like you're going to need more than topsoil. No wonder why the dog's out there digging around. <laughs> yeah, I am no expert. Very, it wasn't a very deep hole. Like, yeah, for a it, fountain? It was a hole for a fountain. It was, right. yeah, it was not a deep hole. Susan said that she did that because she had to weigh him down because she was afraid that he was going to get up. Oh my God, she's not know how this works. Yeah. This episode is sponsored by Pros. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine. But the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pros custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised, controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, Pros proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash creepers. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Siegler dismissed Susan's claims to self-defense, saying that self-defense would have been tying him up and then running out the door with her kids. No, that, no, 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 no. Just like Marissa should have just ran and gotten the car and left. Right. Her own home. Yeah. Like, no. Right. That just shows a clear lack of understanding of what happens in these abusive situations. Right. She called Susan a red-handed, confirmed, documented liar, and she said she's a good liar and a good actress and told the jury not to forget that for a minute. And then, in the most unforgettable moment in courtroom history, <gasps> Siegler... <laughs> I know. Siegler had the actual blood-stained bed wheeled into the courtroom. <gasps> had a young male prosecutor climb onto the mattress. They tied his arms and legs to the bedpost. And then, wearing this tight little black pantsuit, Siegler kicks her heels off, climbs onto the actual bed, straddles this prosecutor. She has the actual knife 
that <gasps> Susan used in her hands, and she reenacts the stabbings. Oh my god! And I didn't even know the, you could do that. You should not be able to. And this is why, because nobody was there. They don't know what actually happened. Yeah, you're speculating. You're totally speculating on what happened in that bedroom. And no, it should never have been allowed. They wouldn't even let people at Scott Peterson go into that boat. Remember? Right. And sh- and throw. <laughs> sh- yes. Yeah. <laughs> But they're going to let this mattress wheel in in the courtroom. Yeah. And it's like blood stained, right? I mean, it's the same. It is the mattress. The blood. It's covered in plastic, you know, but it's the same. And the headboard was all covered in blood. Same Uh, headboard. Can you Google image of this? Did you look at it? Yeah, I tried to find the video of it. I couldn't find it. You can can see pictures. But Mm -hmm. I tried to find like the video of her doing it and you can't. I, I could not find the whole. So if anybody can find the whole video of her doing this. I would love to see it. I know it exists. It's out there somewhere. I can't believe that a quick Google or YouTube search didn't bring it right up. Like, I'm shocked by that. But I could not I could not find it in the 2.5 minutes I spent looking. So if somebody knows where that is, uh, it'd be great if you would just DM that to me. Thank you. Uh, At Creepers Pod. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The article said that they used this young prosecutor because Siegler's co-counsel refused because the co-counsel's <laughs> girlfriend didn't want Siegler writhing all on top of him. In this <laughs> okay. Also, right before this, I guess this prosecutor, the young guy, didn't realize what was going to happen in it. Like, I guess he didn't have the full picture of what was going to happen because he had just stuffed a bunch of dip in his mouth right before. And he started having trouble breathing while she's like, oh, my God, because he needed to spit. And then the ties on his wrist started cutting off circulation to his hands. So he's pulling on those. So it really just looks like he's trying to get away while Siegler is just (laughs) pretend stabbing away at him. Okay. I know we're in Texas, but who is like putting in a full dip in <laughs> in the courtroom that like you're supposed to be like representing in the someone? And then I, I uh, somebody else said that he was just a clerk, like he was an actual prosecutor. But I'm pretty sure the article I read did call him a prosecutor. So I'm not super sure exactly who this Look, guy was. You know what this but... sounds like? Come over <sighs> here, pledge. And <laughs> exactly. Do, do yes, that is exactly what I thought. Like, <laughs> you're up. It's time to prove yourself. Like, not OK. Jurors only deliberated for five hours before dismissing her self-defense claims and convicting her of first degree murder. That's longer than 12 minutes. It is longer than 12 minutes. Yes, they actually deliberated at least. But she was sentenced to 25 years in prison and went down in history as one of Houston's greatest monsters. But one of Houston's most prominent criminal appeals attorneys, Brian Weiss, said that everyone got it wrong. He watched Susan's trial as part of his second job, which was providing commentary for a Houston television station about high-profile cases, and he was outraged by Siegler's portrayal of Susan. He said that she was using blatant attempts, and this is a direct quote, blatant attempts to mislead the jury with myths, misconceptions, and stereotypes about battered women. Yeah. So Weiss took on Susan's case pro bono because he said that Susan did not receive a fair trial. He said the crazy reenactment of the crime was, quote, made for TV nonsense. And in fact, 
Before the trial was even over, a Hollywood producer had already pitched a one-hour drama series to ABC based on Siegler about a (laughs) feisty female attorney in Houston who uses unconventional methods to beat all the boys. Yeah, it seems like she just wanted to do that for some reason. Like, she was really just wanting to, like... Yeah, she wanted her own show. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) I would watch that show in a heartbeat, but it never was made. Yeah, I mean... That show didn't happen, but Siegler did go on to host the show Cold Justice on Oxygen as an advocate for crime victims. I hope none of them were victims of abuse. Yeah. And uh, she then went on to work in private practice, and I believe that's where she still is. She's still practicing. Yeah, I think so. Mm. Private practice. So in November 2004, Weiss starts filing a bunch of appeals for Susan. On top of the reenactment, Weiss also took issue with Susan's attorneys. He said that they were well-meaning but inexperienced and that they had neglected to call witnesses that could have testified about Susan's abuse claims. They also failed to contact a single expert in domestic abuse or domestic violence. What? Who could, yeah. Yeah who could have explained to the jury battered women syndrome. So the jury, all the jury is hearing is Siegler, because again, we we talked about this in the Marissa Alexander case, battered women syndrome really can go against common sense. Why didn't she just get a divorce? Why didn't she just leave? She had all these other options. Siegler was like, she had him tied up. She could have just left with the kids. That's self-defense. Because that's an emotional response. It's not a logical response. Like when you are being abused, you are... You know, it's not logical responses. Well, and you're also taking into consideration the fact that leaving is the most dangerous time, the most mm-hmm. the time you're most likely to die. And if you leave, that person is still there. Yeah. Just because you leave doesn't mean you're safe. So right. it's not taking any of that into account. Researchers are still debating on exactly what happens with battered women, but it has been identified as a subcategory of PTSD, post-traumatic mm-hmm. stress disorder. They compare it to a soldier coming back from war suffering PTSD. There's this growing body of evidence that suggests that some women in these abusive situations just freeze with fear. They completely lose their self-esteem, and they think that if they behave a certain way or do a certain thing or are perfect, they can bring peace to their marriage. They're terrified of angering their husbands, and they don't tell anyone about what's happening. They wait until bruises have cleared to get checkups. As the abuse continues, the women become more and more distraught, and then something happens. Maybe the abuse is worse than usual. Maybe the abuse transfers to the kids. And in rare instances, the woman will suddenly lash out, convinced in her mind that she has only one logical option, to kill her abuser. Wait, I have a question, too. Um, I was thinking about this when you were saying, you know, leaving. Well, if you have a child and you take the kid because, you know, you're not going to leave it with the abuser, then can't you – I mean, isn't that considered kidnapping? Because there's no record of him abusing you, right? So then he calls, hey, my wife has taken my son. Yep. Right. So, like, that's 100% why that also doesn't happen. Yeah. (laughs) A few years after Susan's trial in 2005, Congress passed the Federal Violence Against Women Act, which provides numerous legal remedies for women that have been abused. It also declares abuse as a violation of a woman's human rights and gives the opportunity to file a federal lawsuit under the civil rights statutes. 
Before battered women syndrome became an acceptable defense, women who killed their partners in self-defense had to either plead guilty to murder or take some sort of insanity defense. The issue with battered women syndrome is the definition of self-defense in most states is the use of equal force or the least amount of force necessary to repel danger when the person reasonably perceives they are in imminent danger. That's not really fair. Um, if the guy is like to twice your size right. or he had the weapon first or, you know. Right. And that... So the problem with this is that a jury isn't likely to see a battered woman killing their spouse as reasonable. Typically, women kill their partners not in the middle of a rage or in the middle of their partners abusing them, but later when there's not imminent danger in the usual sense because of battered women syndrome, which causes some women to believe that the only reasonable course of action is to kill their abuser. The imminent danger is that if the abuse continues, their partners will kill them. Mm -hmm. And the only way they can see to stop the abuse safely is to kill their partners. It's also like saying you have to wait until you're being attacked first before you can retaliate when you know that you don't stand a chance. Like, if it's an equal one-to-one, -one, like, he could overtake her, you know? And then it's like, so your option is to wait until they're sleeping or wait until they you have, like, the factor of surprise. It's just, yeah, you know, right. And so I, I do want to point out again that there are resources for women. It, the, your only course of action is n is not to kill your partner. You have options, and I will share that hotline again at the end of this episode because you need a plan and you need support to get out of a situation like this, but. Your options are not stay and suffer and wait to be murdered or murder. Like those right. those aren't your only options. So I do want to put those resources again at the end. And I say all of this just to say that battered women syndrome is a real thing. It's documented. There's research done on it. And it can result from serious long-term domestic abuse. It's, it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card because it is something you have to prove. And that can be really difficult as most women that are abused are really good at hiding it and pretending like everything is fine. Mm -hmm. So Weiss said that Susan's attorneys should have called experts in battered women syndrome, especially the psychologist who had evaluated Wright after the crime when she was in that psych ward at Ben Top, he had found her to be in a near psychotic state, truly convinced that Jeffrey was still alive and was going to come kill her. In early 2009, State District Judge Jim Wallace, who was the same judge in Susan's trial, he ordered a new sentencing hearing because even though it was clear that Susan had killed her husband, he said there was a wealth of mitigating evidence not presented at the punishment state that painted a dramatically different picture of her and her moral blameworthiness. Ooh. The judge said that had that jury been able to see this new evidence, they could have decided that Susan's actions were a result of sudden passion arising from an adequate cause, which may have resulted in a much less severe sentence, maybe even probation. Now, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals is notorious for usually siding with the prosecution. They usually always uphold these convictions. But right. in Susan's case, they were unanimous in upholding Judge Wallace's decision. Weiss cool. told Skip Hollinsworth, who wrote the Texas Monthly article, the highest criminal court in the state was essentially declaring that the jurors had never gotten a chance to see the real Susan Wright. And it was flat out amazing. Oh, that's great. 
Yeah. Siegler, Kelly Siegler, told Skip that she couldn't wait for the new jury to hear additional evidence because they would see what a cold-blooded killer Susan Wright is. She especially couldn't wait for them to hear what Susan really told the psychologist in the psychiatric ward. Siegler predicted that Susan would be going off to prison for as long as she lives. Because this is kind of, you're rolling the dice when you get a new sentencing trial because the jury could decide to give you longer. You know, you're not like guaranteed a better sentence. That's why I'm so curious to see what happens in Scott Peterson. I know. (gasps) Well, you can't get worse than him. I mean, well, right. But I just mean like, you know, it yeah. could it could not work out and it could be the same, you know, it could be the same or he could get time served and walk out of jail. Yeah, I know. It's going to be interesting. Ugh. Oh, my God. <laughs> Weiss found out that 10 months before Susan's trial, detectives from the Harris County Sheriff's Office had taken a sworn statement from Misty McMichael, who worked as a stripper at the Colorado Bar and Grill in Houston and had met Jeffrey Wright there. She called him a big-time spender, and soon they were engaged. Wait, what? Yeah, so an ex-fiance of Jeffrey's that they found. Like before Susan. Before Susan. Oh, okay. Sorry. She's now married to, like, some football player that, of course, I've never heard of. Um, Who is it? Steve McMichael, Chicago Bears football star, Steve McMichael. Mm-hmm. He was also a UT football star. My dad's probably like punching. Screaming at the. Yes. (laughs) Steve McMichael. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, I don't know who he is. Sorry, dad. (laughs) They moved to Austin together, but Jeffrey had stayed with his parents and she got a little small apartment. She said at first he was charming, but then he became abusive, especially if he'd been drinking. (gasps) Uh Uh-huh. She said at first it was just verbally abusive, but that changed when he threw her down the spiral staircase at her apartment and backhanded her across the face. Once he had swiped at a glass that was sitting on the table, it broke and a few shards flew into her chin. (gasps) She filed a police report and Jeffrey was arrested for assault with bodily injury. But as happens so many times... She dropped the charges because she was afraid of what Jeffrey would do when he got out of jail. Right. He continued to abuse her, cheat on her. He'd lock her inside the apartment. And again, this is what Misty McMichael is saying that, you know, I just want to like allegedly until finally she was able to escape and fled to Houston. And she said that Jeffrey did find her in Houston. But by then she already had another boyfriend and he didn't bother her again. Hmm. It seemed that this was the corroborating evidence that Weiss was looking for, someone else that could testify to Jeffrey's claims of abuse and whose story matched up with Susan's. Like the fact that he started off charming, that he'd get especially abusive after he drank and that he'd go out to meet other women. Susan's original attorneys said that Misty wouldn't return their calls and they didn't call her to the stand because they weren't sure what she would say or if the jury would see her as credible because of her employment, which is unfortunately is a fair thought to have because juries could see her being employed as a stripper previously and suddenly she has no credibility which is an unfortunate state that our legal system is in but right weiss says that misty's past should never have prevented the jury from hearing her story especially since by the time of the trial misty had moved on from her stripper life and she was already married to this big football star steve mcmichael Mm mm-hmm 
Weiss also didn't understand how her attorneys could fail to call a single expert on domestic violence to the stand who could have explained to the jury why Susan had done what she did. Because again, if you are unfamiliar, it sounds like a giant lie. Right. And I just can't believe they wouldn't bother to do that. And yeah. it, it, it's do you not just know why? Like, do you well, want to know why? They me. didn't want to overwhelm the jury with too much expert testimony because, quote, <laughs> there's only so much psychobabble a jury can handle. Sorry, that's literally the one place. This isn't a dinner party. It's literally the one place you need to have all those things. I'd be annoyed if we were like out at happy hour and you kept calling all your like expert friends, but you're literally in a courtroom. <laughs> Well, and I'm like, I'm not asking for seven expert witnesses. Can we just get one, one. in there? <laughs> one to testify for like 20 to 30 minutes. Get one. Um, appellate, <laughs> appellate courts have consistently said that expert testimony is necessary to defend battered women who kill their husbands because, duh, the testimony rarely leads to acquittals. But it can affect their sentences. Women, battered women rarely get off scot-free unless uh, apparently if you're Marjorie Deal Armstrong from our last <laughs> our case last week. What a um, good word. Acquittals. <laughs> acquittals. Yeah, it is a good Quittles. word. But it can affect their testimony. It could even just get them probation instead of jail time. Right. Without the testimony from experts, Siegler was just free and clear to use these myths about abusive relationships to her advantage. She said over and over that Susan could have just left whenever she wanted. And if I was on this jury and I didn't know anything about battered women syndrome or abusive relationships, I would have been like, yeah, why wouldn't she just run out the door with her kids after she'd tied them up? Because, I, yeah, I mean, because then he'll come get you. Right. But they didn't know that. Like, they're not seeing that. And they're not also not seeing the psychological damage that it does to you. They're not looking at it as a soldier coming back from war with PTSD. They don't understand that that's what's happening psychologically. So Weiss reached out to a Houston social worker who specialized in family violence issues. And he said that Susan was a textbook battered wife. He said she lived in a state of constant anticipatory terror of Jeffrey. A Harvard-educated professor at Houston's South Texas College of Law. I always love like, – Harvard is the only college where they do that. You know, a Harvard-educated right. professor. Like, you're not like a U of H-educated professor <laughs> yeah. at Harvard Houston's – um, She was teaching at South Texas College of Law in Houston, and she's written extensively on battered women and crime. And she agreed. Susan Wright clearly believed she was committing a reasonable act to save herself and her children. But the biggest mistake that Susan's trial attorneys made was not calling Dr. Jerome Brown, the psychiatrist who had examined Susan after she'd been admitted to the psych ward of Ben Taub. And there was a reason that they didn't call him, and we'll get into that. So Dr. Brown said that when he first met with her, she was in a dissociative state, like she was up in the air looking down on herself, talking about the things that she was doing. Right. She spoke in a flat voice, and she appeared dreamy and unfocused. But when he asked about Jeffrey, she became terrified. She told Dr. Brown that Jeffrey was looking for her and her kids, and she told him all about how he punched her, kicked her, and how she tried to go away in her mind while he raped her. Ugh, God. 
he asked about the night she killed him, and she told him about how she told Jeffrey he needed to get help for his anger, and he'd retaliated by yelling at her, shaking her, and forcing her to have sex. So then he went to sleep, and it was only after he went to sleep that she went to the kitchen, grabbed a knife, and started stabbing him. She told him this exact same story a month later. It hadn't happened in the middle of Jeffrey attacking her. But this is the problem. If it's not happening right then, it's harder to prove self-defense. And this is why her defense attorneys refused to call him to the stand. They wanted to go with with Susan's story of Jeffrey waving the knife around and yelling, die, bitch, because they thought it would be a better argument if they could show that she was facing imminent harm and that she killed Jeffrey in self-defense. But I think that was the wrong move because I don't think anybody is buying this story that this 120-pound woman was being attacked on a bed with her 220-pound husband waving a knife in her face and that somehow she was able to overpower him. Right. Yeah. And he's got a knife. I don't think anybody's buying that story. So I think going with that story was stupid, but not not a lawyer. (laughs) Yeah. Not not an expert opinion. And I think if you're able to show, which we obviously have established that there was no actual proof brought up in the court of this like pattern of abuse. We're not saying it didn't happen, but it's not proven. If that part would have been there, it would have been so much easier to say yeah she killed him in his sleep but Mm -hmm. that occurred because of a through z that we already know you know but you don't have that part yeah and then unfortunately there were some shady phone calls like the lawyers pointed out this inconsistency with dr brown and he's like oh shoot i think i can account for that and Mm -hmm. he said that it's possible that her mind wouldn't allow her to remember such a traumatic event like him waving the knife and all that, but that as time passed, more details started coming back to her. But again, I don't I don't think that that story happened. And I'm not saying I don't believe Susan, I but I don't believe that story. I don't I don't think that's what happened. I think it happened exactly how she told Dr. Brown. Right. And she came up with the knife waving scenario because she knew it sounded better. Yeah. Okay, let me be clear. I do believe that Susan was in imminent danger, regardless of which scenario is true. I I don't believe that the discrepancy in her story means that she was lying about everything right. else. She was definitely But I do in believe danger. that she was asleep. Yeah, but I do believe that he was asleep when she started stabbing him. Dr. Brown assumed he'd be testifying in that first trial, and he planned to say that Susan had basically snapped, that she'd tolerated the abuse so long as it was only directed at her, but when he started to hurt Bradley, she just lost it, and she had a mental break that night and stayed that way for days, probably even weeks. Dr. Brown said that he didn't think that she became completely psychotic, but that she was definitely drifting in and out of reality, and she had no clear idea of what she was doing or why. But her attorneys at the original trial, they said that it was a deal breaker to present both stories at trial. And if he didn't call Brown to the stand, those privileged conversations would remain a secret and nobody would ever know that there was this other story that she had been saying. And to this day, he thinks he made the right call. But I just think that's because he doesn't know anything about battered women syndrome because he didn't call a single witness. So how could he know? Yeah, I don't think that was the right move. And. No, and Weiss said that because they refused to call any doctors or experts, that Susan was basically left to defend herself, and she didn't have a chance in hell of winning. Susan said that when she first got to the prison, she'd look at the fences, sure that she was going to see Jeffrey, 
figuring out a way to get into the oh prison. Gosh. She'd wake up in cold sweats, and it took her a long time to understand that he was not coming back. And now in prison, she's known as the prison Martha Stewart. Ah! Like she uses she uses snacks from the vending machine to create versions of a cheesecake or a snickerdoodle pie. Oh my gosh. She's finally allowed to take some college classes. Like Jeffrey wouldn't let her, but prison Yeah, will. I mean, <laughs> what, the, what the hell? <laughs> She's uh she's making A's in all her classes and she does Beth Moore Bible studies at night. I actually knew somebody, so I had a friend of a friend whose mother was in prison, I believe for I believe for killing her dad. I can't remember all the details. But she said that she was in prison with Susan Wright and that they were like buds. Like they would go walking in the yard together every day. Like Sus. <laughs> yeah. Like I said earlier, her kids went to live with Jeffrey's brother, and they have no contact whatsoever with Susan. Her parental rights were terminated after her conviction. But she still likes acting like their mother. Like, she'll watch Saturday morning cartoons, and she'll make a list of all the toys she sees in the commercials, Mm -hmm. and she'll send her sister a list to see if those would be good Christmas gifts for her kids, Mm. which is really sad to me. That's heartbreaking. I know. Yeah. Jeffrey's father, Ron, told 48 Hours that he considers Susan some type of animal. And I wonder what he has to say about his abusive son. Yeah, okay. And then Siegler said she looked hard for evidence about the abuse. She says she'd grown up in an abusive household herself. And she said even though they'd tried to keep the abuse a secret, there was still little things that could prove it. The bruises, a call to the police, a little bit they told their friends or some that they witnessed, the visits to the doctor. Even though they tried to keep the secret, that was all still there. But in Susan's case, none of that was. Okay, Kelly, well, you don't live with Susan. Like, they, I mean, Susan did tell someone. Susan did have bruises, but you weren't her roommate, so you didn't see any of that. I know. That's exactly what I thought. I was like, okay, except for all of Susan's friends and her mom who testified to witnessing and hearing about little bits and the ex-girlfriend with the same exact story, but okay. Yeah. And it's like that the jury's hearing Kelly say that, and they're like, yeah. Like they're mm-hmm. like in their mind. Mm-hmm. I'm not a hundred percent. I don't. I don't know that she said that at trial. I know that she's saying oh. that now, commenting on the case. Just I'm not like, sure she said that at trial. Yeah. Ugh. But she says that Doctor Brown proves that Susan was lying because the story she told him is the real story. Which I I agree with that. I do think that's the real story. But I don't think she did mm-hmm. it for two hundred thousand dollars in life insurance yeah. money. Please. And like I said earlier, Siegler's not sold on that motive either. She says no one will probably ever figure out her motive, but she can tell you one thing. It wasn't because she was a battered wife. And she knows this because there wasn't a single police report, hospital record, or statement to CPS. Woof. Also, Woof. like, what is she going to do with $200,000? Put it on her commissary in prison? Right. Like, Right. Did she think that she would look? My husband was stabbed 193 times. Ignore the blood on myself and um, the fact that he's buried in my own backyard so I can collect on this money. Yeah. And I don't trust that he put her down as a beneficiary anyways. That's a good point. And Susan said she sits in prison every day and asks herself why she didn't just once go talk to a police officer or go to a shelter or stay at her parents' house after Cindy, her sister, helped her move out. But she said she was so scared back then. She was paralyzed. But she said that even if her appeal didn't work out, at least now she feels safe in prison. 
She said, isn't it strange that I had to come to prison to feel safe? But I mean, isn't it sad? And that should just tell you, like, she would rather stay there mm-hmm. than have, I mean, she felt safer going there mm-hmm. than trying to make a run for it. Like, yep. to me, that's all the proof I need. Yeah, same. At her resentencing hearing, the prosecution maintained that she was just a housewife who was unhappy in her marriage, angry at her husband's drug use and frequent late nights out. And Dr. Brown testified, but I don't think it scored many points with the jury. The prosecution made really strong points about the two different stories that she told. Misty McMichael's testimony might not have helped much either. I couldn't get a lot of details on what she did, but an article in CNN about the resentencing hearing said that the judge scolded her. And I'll point out, uh, wonderful Skip Hollinsworth's article ended before the appeal because the appeal hadn't happened yet. So Uh. I could get no information on the appeal from him. So I had to try to get it myself. And there just Uh. wasn't a whole lot out there and not much that I could corroborate. Like Wikipedia had some really weird stuff to say that I couldn't find anywhere else. So I didn't. Anyways. Yeah, you don't know if that's fact. Right. So an article in CNN about the resentencing hearing said that the judge scolded her, telling her that she was turning the hearing into a circus. But I'm like, you must not have been the judge at the trial when they wheeled in the bloody mattress. Sorry, you missed the main event. (laughs) Prosecutors called her story a blend of fiction and exaggeration, Misty's story, when she said that Jeffrey threw her down the staircase 104 times and kept her locked in a room above his family's flooring business, which it might be an exaggeration. I don't know that I buy that he threw her down the stairs 104 times and she never had to go to the hospital for any of it. Like, is that one time, like, in one sitting, or is that just, like, over the course of their relationship? Surely over the course of their relationship. Like, she didn't get up, walk up the stairs, and he pushed her down again. (laughs) Okay. Well, I don't know. Yeah, I don't either. Another ex-girlfriend, Marcy Holloway, came forward just before the hearing and testified that Jeffrey was a patient, caring boyfriend, and she only broke up with him because she couldn't handle being with a man who was better looking than her. So... Okay, well, that girl's (laughs) needs to go. In closing statements, the assistant district attorney, John Jordan, said, this is not a battered woman. This is divorce by homicide. She could have, if she was just unhappy in her marriage, she could have gone and cheated. Like, yeah, it's not. She could have gone and done a whole lot of other things. And there's nothing in her background that showed any sort of violent nature, any, I mean, it was just completely against her nature. So there was obviously something psychological happening. One of her defense attorneys, Jonathan Meunier, maybe, gave the closing statement for the defense and said that Jeffrey was the devil. He said, quote, and how do you kill the devil? You can't. He's still here, still tormenting her. What more can she lose? This time, the jury deliberated for more than 10 hours over the course of two days, and they ended up shaving five years off of her sentence. Which was what originally? 25. So now 20-year sentence. She was up for parole in 2014 and 2017, but was denied. Jeffrey's family continues to defend him. His brother even said that Jeffrey's last words to his mother were, I love you. And does that sound like a man that abuses women? Would a man man that tells his mom that on the phone like it's a a natural response? I don't know. I feel like guys are always like, all right, love you, bye. Would a man that abuses women tell their mothers, I love you? 
Yes, yes, I, I think they would. <laughs> yeah, that means nothing. Yeah, they would. It was proven uh, that when he came home that night, he was drunk, high on cocaine and GHB, which probably made him pass out later, giving her the opportunity to stab him 193 times. Yeah. If it weren't for Misty McMichael, I might hem a bit on Susan's culpability, on if the prosecution was right, on if she was lying about the whole thing. You know, Brittany Norwood from Lululemon, uh, you know, she shows us that small women yeah. are capable of inflicting an insane amount of wo- wounds on someone with barely oh, any motive, like you know? 300 something. Yeah. yeah. But in that case, Brittany had a past that kind of explained it. Susan was not some – she was a timid person who let people walk all over her her entire life, and she didn't have anything criminal in her background. I think there's just too much that lines up that makes it clear to me, that she was a severely abused woman for years. Right. She was uh, – and so I wasn't originally going to do this case, not now anyways. I had a, other cases lined up to do. But I decided to do this when I just found out because she was up for parole again in 2020, and it was granted. So on <gasps> December 30th, just a few weeks ago, she – like two week, like a week and a half ago – from the time of recording, she walked out of prison after 16 years in prison. And she went to a home in Harris County, I assume, like her parents' home or maybe her sister's. She'll have to report to her parole officer until 2024, which would have been the end of her sentence. And the terms of her parole are that she has to get anger control training, counseling, and get a job. She can't leave the state, but she lives in Texas, so why would she want to? And and she's 44 now. So she's been in prison since she was 28 years old. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So what do you think about 28 to 44. I think I am horrified by people and what they're able to do to other people and small people and dogs. Mm -hmm. And I think that I lose faith in our criminal justice system weekly now that I've meet with you and um i just think it's really sad and i think that we've got it all wrong when it comes to how women have i think we have it all wrong not just women have been abused but when we start deciding how people should react or act when they've been abused or they've been raped or they've been accused of something you know yeah so here's what I think about this whole case. I I think that if Susan Wright's story is true, that she shouldn't have had to spend a day in prison. But many people believe that Susan Wright was lying about the abuse to get away with murder. And I just – I have several problems with that theory. First is that she stabbed Jeffrey 193 times. So here's a woman who's never had a single thing in her background to suggest that she's violent by nature. And the only thing psychologically were her bouts of postpartum depression. Nothing to suggest she would be capable of committing this crime. But she did. There's no doubt about it. Like, so how does someone go from spending her whole life being this meek and timid person who would do anything guys asked her to do to doing something so brutally violent to her husband? She wasn't trying to get away with something like Brittany in the Lululemon episode, like she wasn't trying to keep some secret hidden that he'd found out. I can't think of a single other motive to stab your husband 193 times than blind rage. And what might cause so much blind rage? Was it that she found out he'd been cheating and given her herpes? Like, maybe. But here's where Susan gets me. It's 
It's the details of her abuse, the little details, like that he had her sign her paycheck over to him in their early days before they were even married, that he would only let her leave the house to go to the store or see her mother, and even then for very brief periods of time. The fact that she had packed up a U-Haul and left, but he sent a moving van right, to get her back. All of this is just so typical of abuse cases, and I believe her. The fact that she never reported the abuse, the statistic of the number of women who actually report domestic violence abuse is somewhere between 2.5% and 15%, according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics Report on Violence Against Women. Kelly Siegler herself admitted that when she was experiencing domestic abuse growing up, the police did nothing about it when it was reported. So why, why would a woman risk angering the source of the violence further by reporting it when there's no guarantee they will be helped? And again, I just or want, that they'll believe you or that they'll believe no guarantee you. they'll believe you. And I just want to add, there are ways to get help if you or someone you know is a victim of domestic violence. It requires having a plan and having a support system. So if you need resources or you need that support system to help you, please go to hotline.org or call them at 1-800-799-SAFE, which is 1-800-799-7233. I'll link that in the show notes. And I also just want to point out that this happened in 2003. Like, we are just now at a place in our own society where victim blaming is being pointed out and slapped down. Like, we are all learning as a society that it doesn't matter what a woman wears, she's never asking for it. I mean, we are just now there. Preach, sister. I mean, and we're not even all the way there. Like, people are still saying, well, she shouldn't have been wearing that skirt, you know. And this is 2003. That was almost 20 years ago. And then, of course, there are the- Oh, my God. I know. I know. And then, of course, there are the two different scenarios. Like, I don't know what actually happened in the bedroom that night. It's possible that she blocked out the memory of him attacking her, but I I don't think that that's what happened. I think she was married to a controlling abuser. I don't really care that he told his mother, I love you. And under the battered woman defense, lethal force can sometimes be justified, even if the threat may not appear immediate. So I think maybe she did lure him to bed, tied him up, made him think they were going to have sex, and then stabbed him. I don't believe her story about how he had a knife. I don't think there's any way if that happened that she could have managed to overpower him. He had 100 pounds on her. But I believe that she had spent years in a horribly abusive relationship. And in her mind, that was the only way out. So she killed him. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. So that is the blue-eyed butcher of Houston. Houston's blue-eyed butcher. And garbage humans. God. Yep. And I am kind of nervous about meeting this person in the Kroger parking lot. Okay, wait. Say that again. Why are you meeting somebody in the Kroger parking lot? I'm giving him a um, pressure washer. Oh, God. Can you get Russ to do it? Well, I mean, he's going with me, but um, this guy literally looks like he could murder me. He's got like the tiny, thin chin thing. Oh, God, no. A chin strap. A chin strap. It looks like he wore a white tuxedo to prom. So that tells you anything is that, dude. Okay, so here's what you do. You you, um, live stream it. (laughs) <laughs> i'm on facebook live trading this pressure yeah. washer yeah and let him know you're From live streaming fans. it so in case oh he God. murders you he's harmless <laughs> but that chin oh, yeah. strap is something else my god 
You know, and the only thing that where I'm like, yeah, this is harmless is because we've grown up where we have. Well, you know, and I also, see- yeah, I also think about like if you had just sent me a picture of Ted Bundy, I would have said the same. Ah, uh, he's harmless. Or Jeffrey <laughs> yeah, Dahmer. Yeah. Have you seen Jeffrey Dahmer's like little sweet face? No, Who's that? Oh, my. Shit, I know who that is. Jeffrey who? Jeffrey Dahmer. I know Ted Bundy. Spell it. D-A-H-M-E-R. Oh, my God. I got to cover Jeffrey oh. Dahmer now, and I really don't want to. Ah. Ew, no, please don't. He every Like, I know that you don't so know a lot weird. about true crime, but every now and then you say something that I'm just like, oh, wow, we got work to do. Like, I Jeffrey know. Dahmer, who's that? <laughs> I was like, he seems like a nice guy. <laughs> Yikes. No. Uh, that is embarrassing. But I like that about me. I yeah. love that about you. Like, <laughs> like, sometimes I get a little worried that you're going to know about a case like this one. I was like, surely she's heard of this one. Like everybody in Houston knows about <laughs> Susan Wright. Yeah, I'm surprised I didn't know about this. It also helps I don't really watch the news or anything. Yeah, I mean, or this TV. happened a long like, time ago. I just ago, don't watch TV. I had just heard about this from like hearing about like it just somebody told me about it. I feel like maybe a lot of these things that I'm hearing about because I know I heard about the cheerleader from my mom. And I'm pretty sure I heard about this one from my mom. So maybe my mom is a real true crime fanatic. She's the real true crime fanatic. You should ask her. And I just never knew. But she's been telling me all these things my whole life. And that's why I'm into true crime. So really, mom, this is all your fault. It's all on you. (laughs) No, it's so funny because I, you know, I would think I would know the the Houston or the Texas ones. But then you say something like when you're like January 2003, I think, and I'm trying to like place myself, you know, like, where was I? And I'm like, oh, I was up all night at the high school working on the Guys and Dolls musical. <laughs> and like, we would stay there. So I was like, that's what I was doing. My mom was blowing me up to come home on my pager that she gave me, you know, like, <laughs> that's what I was doing in 2003. So I didn't have time to worry about all that. So thank you so much, everyone, for listening to this episode. Uh, if you liked it, please consider going to Apple Podcasts. Give us a rating and a review we're almost to 80 which is close to our goal of 100 so thank you so much to everybody that has given us a review and a rating we really appreciate it um i've had some people ask like what if i don't have an iphone how can i help you guys and you grab someone else's iphone when you're out (laughs) next time or just tell your friends about the podcast word of mouth is an awesome way to help us grow so if you know somebody that you think might like it share it with them we would really love that and appreciate it post it on your social media post it on your social we've had some shout outs which have been awesome really exciting speaking of our social you can find us on instagram twitter facebook at creepers pod um, and you can always email us if you have any case suggestions or feedback or thoughts about any of these cases at creeperspod at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you And be sure to subscribe to True Crime Creepers so you'll have our next episode as soon as it drops when I'll tell Mogab all about the mysterious death of Brittany Murphy. Bye, peeps and creeps.